Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining Clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. There's typically three buckets for the point, for, the, for our purposes here of different types of income. We're going to have earned income, we're going to have portfolio income, and then we're going to have passive income. So earned income is stuff you would earn from a, a job. So if you have a W2 job or if you're running, if you're self-employed or you're running a business, uh, typically that's going to be considered earned income. Though that's taxed up to rates up to 37% at the, at the federal level under current law. And it could also be subject to state taxes. And in some cases, if you live in a city like New York, local taxes. So highly taxed income on earned income, very difficult to shelter from taxes. And we may, you know, we may or may not get into that, but very difficult to shelter from taxes. The portfolio income, that's like stocks, bonds, um, mutual funds. So uh, interest, dividends, royalties, capital gains from those types of investments, that's portfolio income. Now we have passive income, passive income, is income from rental activities. So all rental activities are passive by default unless you qualify as a real estate professional or from businesses in which you do not materially participate. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hey, everybody, this is Jay Scott, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to uh, be with Thomas Costelli. He's a CPA and tax strategist at the Real Estate CPA. He's also a real estate investor and LFI infielder uh, who helps other real estate investors uh, keep more of the hard-earned dollars in their pockets and out of the governments. And um, he holds equity positions in several real estate syndications and funds, and he's the co-host of the uh, Smart REI podcast, or I'm sorry, the Tax Smart REI podcast, which um, I was just on their podcast, which by the time you're listening to this will be a month or so ago, but it was it was a great time. And we're really pleased to have Thomas with us. He's If you're in the LFI infielders forum, you'll notice him in there occasionally answering some tax questions and helping out. So we really appreciate him being part of the community. Thomas, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thank you for having me on, Jim. It's, it's an honor to be here today. Yeah, so the first question I always ask is just, what's your journey? Did you grow up wanting to be a CPA? And then when you became a CPA, did you figure, hey, real estate's my focus? How did you decide real estate was going to be the focus? How did you decide all of that? Just kind of give us a, a background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of growing up, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur in business. I've been saying since I was five years old, but uh, a lot of people in my life told me to go to college, do that entire do that entire thing. Uh, so Basically, my parents convinced me to go to school for accounting. So while I was in college for accounting, uh, I kind of started to realize, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to get me to where I want to go in life, um, you know, the entire like, nine to five type of thing. And I, that's when I started picking up, I started reading books. I started reading The Richest Man in Babylon. I think it was the first like self-help financial book I picked up. Then it was the Rich Dad Poor Dad books. And from there, the rabbit hole goes pretty deep. So that's kind of where I came across real estate was from the Rich Dad Poor Dad books. I started attending local RIAs and different meetups while I was in college. And uh, one at one point, I went to a syndication event. It was a three-day weekend on real estate syndication. And they kind of taught how to do a real estate syndication from A to Z. And I really fell in love with the model from there. So like when I graduated college, I started going to these meetings and started networking with a bunch of real estate investors and they were syndicators. They were raising capital for various deals. So I ended up starting to invest some money with them as a limited partner, as a passive investor. One of them eventually came to me and said, hey, 
uh, hey, Tom, look, if you find us a deal and you find a viable deal, we'll syndicate it. We'll sponsor it. We'll go ahead and go to market. So I actually ended up was on the sponsorship team of uh, an ATU apartment complex, which has since went full cycle. Um, so that was exciting. Got to see kind of behind the scenes there. Uh, but then um, along the same time that that deal happened, I realized, look, where I was in, I was in audit at that point. I came out of college, went to audit for being a, you know, for being a CPA. And I was like, I really don't like general business, general assurance, doing all these big corporate companies. I like the most, the more small business aspects. So that's kind of when I met Brandon Hall and um, I joined the real estate CPA um, and became a tax strategist and helped start helping real estate investors reduce taxes. And then along that same time, I realized I can't do that and be like a syndicator chasing deals. So I decided just to be on the passive investing side and focus on my career um, as a CPA. So that's kind of how I how I got to where I am today. That, that's great. And, you know, I always tell people, because everyone's like, hey, I need, a, I need a good CPA. And I've been through several of them until I, I landed with one that's uh, working for me. But what I always say is you got to find someone who's a, a real estate investor, right? You can't just go to any CPA because they're not going to be focusing on what you're focusing on. Right. But I think that's fantastic that you started out as an LP investor. And so you understand all of that. And then you can really help your, your clients who are also presumably LP investors, or some of them are, you can help them strategize. So you do both strategy and tax prep for your, your clients. Correct. Correct. Excellent. Okay, so let's let's dive into it. So, you know, there, there's all kinds of questions people are always wanting to talk about um, when, we, when we talk to a CPA. And the first one is, can you just give us a background, an overview of some of the, the rules, the passive rules for investors? What offsets what? What kind of gains? You know, I know there's, there's three tax buckets, right? Can you kind of talk about those and, and how everything fits together? Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a great question. So there, let's start here. There's typically three buckets for the point, for, the, for our purposes here of different types of income. We're going to have earned income. Um, we're going to have portfolio income, and then we're going to have passive income. So earned income is stuff you would earn from a, a job. So if you have a W2 job or if you're running, if you're self-employed or you're running a business, uh, typically that's going to be considered earned income. Um, those, that's taxed up to rates up to 37% at the, at the federal level under current law. And it could also be subject to state taxes. And in some cases, if you live in a city like New York, local taxes. So highly taxed income on earned income, very difficult to shelter from taxes. And we may, you know, we may or may not get into that, but very difficult to shelter from taxes. Um, the portfolio income, that's like stocks, bonds, um, mutual funds, so uh, interest, dividends, royalties, capital gains from those types of investments, that's portfolio income. Now we have passive income. Passive income is income from rental activities. So all rental activities are passive by default unless you qualify as a real estate professional um, or from businesses in which you do not materially participate. In many cases, uh, these types of businesses could be businesses that someone may be spun up and is just no longer actively involved in or uh, actual like you know, you're investing with somebody who's like a limited partner, a passive investor, and they're going out and they're running the deal for very much like a real estate syndication, and you're just putting money with them. So those are the three buckets. Now, um, earn income again, very hard to uh, shelter income from tax from from taxes, and that's because pass because all rental activities are passive by default. So what happens is if you invest in a real estate syndication, um, typically they're going to use a cost segregation study and bonus depreciation in the first year. You're going to get your K-1 back. And in box two, um, in a real estate syndication, there's typically going to be a large loss in the first year. Um, now, that loss is going to be considered passive by default. So that means they can't offset your earned income, right? So uh, passive losses can't offset earned income. and also can't offset portfolio income, generally speaking. So uh, basically passive income, passive losses can offset other passive income. So for example, if you invested in syndication A, and let's say that goes full cycle, and now it's being sold, you're going to have a gain, hopefully, from that syndication. If you do have passive losses from prior years or from the current year, passive losses uh, can offset that gain on sale. That's known as the lazy 1031 exchange. Another really interesting benefit of, of the passive bucket is if you are investing in a lot of passive deals that are throwing off cash flow, you can invest in other passive activities or other passive opportunities, syndications, and use the losses from those to offset the income from the activities that are cash flowing. And in many cases, uh, you could pay little to no taxes if you're a pure passive investor. So uh, that's kind of how it, that's kind of how those three buckets work kind of in a nutshell. 
That's a great explanation. And I'm going to try to summarize it. And you correct me because I'll probably get some of it wrong. But so if you have a W-2, that kind of income, you know, there's not much you can do. We'll talk about the real estate professional perhaps if we get to it. But basically, that's tax. There's nothing that really offsets that, you know, in that bucket. Then portfolio, that's stocks, bonds, mutual funds. If you get if you have gains, those can be offset by losses right. in that same bucket, right? If you right. lose a stock you and one gains a bunch of money, then those are offset. So that stays in that bucket. And then the third one is anything that's kind of real estate rental related, that offsets um that that's in the passive bucket and that can offset each other. So any so if you like when you first start out in real estate syndications and you're investing, let's say you invest in five deals this year, you're gonna have a ton of loss stacked up, right? But you're not gonna have anything to offset it against because you're not gonna have a whole bunch of cash flow. So that loss then can be saved forever, correct? And offset as as right. your income grows. Is that correct? Right. Th- those losses will not expire. They'll go with you until they're used or until you until you uh, until you pass away, pretty much. So. OK, so the nice thing about that is when you're just starting out, you're you're basically banking a bunch of depreciation or tax loss that can be applied later. And so you mentioned it. I want to jump into it next bonus depreciation and cost segregation. So can you tell right. us what those are? Are they the same thing? They always kind of, people talk about them together, but they're not the same. So can you kind of go into each one of those a little bit and just give us a brief overview and then we'll dig into those as well. Yeah, absolutely. So basically when you buy a property, um, the building the building is going to be depreciated. Land is never depreciated. So usually there's going to be an allocation of that property's purchase price to the land and then there's going to be a bunch to the building. So the building, uh, if it's a residential building, like a multifamily building, for example, that's going to be depreciated over 27 and a half years. So that means that you're going to take one twenty seventh and a half of that building's value every year is depreciation expense. If it's a commercial building, it's to be thirty nine years. Now, uh, the thing is, when you have a building, it's not just the building, right? There's all these different components within the building um, that make up the building itself, right? It's not just the structure. So, what a cost segregation study does is it's an engineering study, typically done by engineers. They're going to survey the property and they're going to break down the property's components into their different class lives. So typically with real estate, you're going to have five, seven, and 15-year class lives. Five years, uh, what's known as tangible personal property. That's things like appliances, uh, carpeting, uh, certain types of cabinetry and fixtures, things of that nature. Then you have land improvements. Those are things like pools, decks, fences, uh, kind of things along those lines. Seven-year property is kind of stuff that just falls in between. Um, and then, so the cost segregation study breaks that all down. And those, that five, seven, and 15-year property are depreciated over five, seven, and 15 years, which is shorter, which means that the depreciation expense will be higher uh, on those asset classes. Um, and there's also, they can also use the double declining balance, which also increases the depreciation on those. So that's kind of what a cost segregation study does. It breaks down the components of a building into different class lives. Now, uh, where bon- what bonus depreciation is, bonus depreciation allows you to rapidly accelerate the depreciation expense on uh, property with a, a class life of less than 20 years. So that five, seven, and 15-year bucket that I was mentioning um, can be rapidly accelerated. So it, in 2022, if you bought a property basically and placed in the service with between 2017 and 2022, uh, excuse me, the tail end of 2017, so September 27th was the specific date, um, and the end of 2022, you were eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. So 100% of that five, seven, and 15 year property would be depreciated in the first year, right? And now okay. in 2023, as of this recording, it's 80%. Uh, so that means 80% of it will be depreciated. Next year in 2024, it'll be 60 and it drops down 20% until it's gone in 2026. So the reason why it's, they're kind of mentioned together is because over the last few years, the purpose of a cost segregation study was to break down those components so that uh, you could use bonus depreciation on them, which gets which is what gets people those large losses. So two separate things, um, but uh, used in combination, um, especially over the last five years or so. Okay, so just so everyone is on the same page, these are paper losses. It's not real losses that, that you're experiencing, and you want those losses so you can bank them to offset gains that you're eventually going to have so you don't have to pay tax on those. Now, cost segregation then 
as you explained it, is kind of just divvying up what, what gets depreciated at which rate. And bonus depreciation then is just saying, hey, let's dump it all in year one because we all know we want as much as possible up front so you can offset it against the gains that you have. So then what's this depreciation recapture? Because I've heard people you know, worried about, well, depreciation recapture kind of means that you're going to have to pay all that tax anyway. But talk about how if you sell the asset after five years, some of that recapture is just gone because those items depreciate to nothing. Can you kind of talk about recapture and how that all works? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So basically what happens is when you buy a property for tax purposes, you're going to have what's known as its cost basis. So its cost basis is typically its purchase price plus um, some type, some of the transactional costs that, that go into closing the property. Um, so when you depreciate a property, you're reducing its cost basis. So for example, let's just say we had a property, it was a million dollars, just for the sake of argument. Uh, now let's say you use bonus depreciation, you have $200,000 of bonus depreciation in that first year. Well, now your cost basis is going to be $800,000, okay? So when you sell the property, let's say a few years later, you sell the property for $1.2 million, right? Uh, it appreciated in value, whether it be forced or, or market depreciation, it appreciated. Your gain is not going to, your total gain on sale is not going to be 1.2 million minus the million dollars. Uh, the original purchase price is going to be 1.2 million minus 800,000, right? So the $200,000 of gain is going to come from uh, appreciation. So that's going to be considered a capital gain. The other 200,000 in this example is going to be considered, it's going to be considered depreciation recapture. Now, depreciation recapture is taxed at different rates, uh, depending on the type of recapture. Um, if it's from the building itself, typically going to be uh, recaptured at a rate up to 25%. If it's from the, the recapture of five or seven, five, seven or 15 year property that was accelerated, like bonus depreciation, can be taxed up to rates uh, at ordinary income rates. Now, uh, that's kind of how depreciation recapture works in a nutshell. Um, now, when you actually sell the property, there might be an argument to be made that in the purchase and sale agreement that certain assets are no longer have any value when they're conveyed. Uh, so that might help mitigate um, some of the depreciation recapture. But uh, for the most part, when you're selling an asset um, that has been depreciated, you're going to be facing depreciation recapture of some sort. Um, one more thing I'd like to just add in there is that depreciation recapture can be offset by passive losses from other activities. So uh, kind of along the lines with the lazy 1031, if you have an asset that's being sold and you're going to have a total of, say, a $400,000 gain, just for sake of example, half from depreciation recapture, half from uh, appreciation, that both both could theoretically be offset by passive losses from other uh, rental activities or other passive business activities. So um, that's kind of how the depreciation recapture works. Oh, that's great. And and we call it the, the golden hamster wheel, right, is where you sell that asset for whatever you sold it for and you have that gain. Then you go and invest that cash that you now have in a new asset. And that's where you get that new chunk of depreciation that can offset your depreciation recapture. And it's the golden hamster wheel. As soon as you sell an asset, you buy a new one. And it's kind of like the 1031 exchange, right, because you're upgrading. But what happens is you end up um, – kind of offsetting some of your depreciation recapture. So when we're talking about bonus depreciation, you mentioned it, right? It's getting reduced every year. So the challenge for investors is to figure out what, what does that exactly mean? I understand now this year I can only take 80%, right? But what happens yeah. to that other 20%? I just can't accelerate it, but I still get it, right? So is the end result, if I hold the asset long-term, is the end result going to be the same, it's just the timing of the depreciation, or is it something else? Right, so that other 20% is gonna be depreciated over its useful life, right? So if it's five-year property, it would be depreciated over five years. Um, and uh, with five-year property, you can use like the double declining balance, so it would be still accelerated, uh, but you're not taking that other 20% all in the first year. So you still get it, it's gonna be over that five-year period, it's just not gonna be all up front. So it doesn't disappear, it's just, you're just not- okay front-loading it. So if I continue to invest in new deals every year, I'm always going to have a chunk of depreciation that keeps getting allocated to me, whether it's the bonus depreciation that just front-loads it or just regular depreciation from the asset just depreciating, right? So I'm always going to get it. So if I'm a consistent investor, this reduction from 100% all the way down to zero 
it's going to affect it, but it's not, it's not like you're not getting the depreciation. You're just not getting it as soon as you want it. Is that accurate? Right. Right. That, that, that is accurate. You're always going to have a depreciation expense from the building itself. And in the case with 80% or 60% bonus depreciation, depreciation like it will be next year, uh, you're still getting that other 20 or 40% um, over the, the useful life of that asset. It's just, again, just not front loaded. So it's not disappearing. Okay. You still have a depreciation expense allocated to you each year. Hi, this is Zach Hapsenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise 48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equities Multifamily Investments, Schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. One of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, is currently accepting accredited investors into their Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2. Why should you invest in multifamily now? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's turmoil around the world, and we are in a very high inflationary environment. Naturally, that's a lot to digest, and it's on a lot of people's minds as to what this means for multifamily or how to interpret this kind of data and reasons to consider when deciding to invest. Ashcroft Capital has compiled a white paper of five reasons to consider investing in multifamily in 2022. To read it and to learn more about investing in multifamily real estate with Ashcroft's AVAF2, visit ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. And so our, our community at Left Field Investors, we're investing in multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, uh, RV parks, just all kinds of different asset classes. Are some asset classes better at producing depreciation or bonus depreciation or cost segregations or whatever makes that depreciation front-loaded and be faster and bigger and better for us? Are there some asset classes that are better than others? Um, generally speaking, I would say there are. Um, there's certain, it depends on the asset class. Um, so I, I, would, I would go say mobile home parks probably have the best depreci depreciation benefits because a lot of the mobile home parks value is going to be allocated to um, 15 year property and uh, that's land improvement. So a large, a lot of times mobile home parks are able to be significantly depreciated a large portion of it because of that. Also um, because a lot of it's allocated to the 15 year property. Then we have things like um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. All right. The other thing is uh, going to be like gas stations, right? I don't know how people invest in gas stations, but gas stations can also be uh, completely depreciated under certain rules um, because th there's a special carve out for gas stations, special carve out for car washes. So those types of properties actually have uh, significant uh, tax benefits. But uh, other than that, um, pretty much, you know, multifamily, you're going to be able to expect somewhere between 25 to 30 to 30 percent of its value to be eligible for uh, bonus depreciation. So that works out that way. Um, office around the is office is going to generally be similar. So it, it's hard to tell because so property by property specific. But again, mobile home parks, uh, gas stations, car washes, significant tax benefits there. If you invest in ATM <laughs> machines, they can all be depreciated in the first year because it's five-year property. So you're going to be eligible for 80% bonus depreciation, excuse me, on that bucket of, of property. So um, those are the asset classes that typically get the most. And then you'll see like multifamily office buildings come in um, under those for the okay. most part. Now, I, I've done a lot of multifamily investing and, and, you know, there's one deal that I was in. I invested 50 grand and year one, I got $55,000 loss on my K1 and another deal, I invested 50 grand and I had like a $10,000 loss year one on my K1. How can there be such a big difference between, you know, one deal to the next just on a multifamily property? That's cut in part one. And part two is, if I'm trying to execute the lazy 1031 strategy that we talk about, you know, how can I be sure that I'm investing in the right deals to get that? Like, we don't want the, the tax tail to wag the dog or however people say that. But how do I make sure that I'm getting enough depreciation? Or can right. I? That's a, good, that, that, that's, that, that's a good question. So um, I think the first step is to speak with the sponsor, ask if they're going to be doing a cost segregation study. 
Um, in most cases, they will. Uh, some cases, they won't. So we've seen some people be surprised when that's not the case. So we want to make sure you have that conversation with the sponsor because that that's an important key element. Um, as for properties that are going to, you know, if, if you're looking to offset the amount, you have to, it, it is really challenging because we've seen syndications go any, you, you, where you invest $50,000, for example, and you're getting anywhere between 70 to 90% of it back um, using uh, with bonus depreciation on multifamily properties uh, in that first year. So it, it, it's it's definitely, there's a range and it just depends on the extent of the depends on the type of property, how much, like how large the property is, how much different components in the property can actually be depreciated, as well as uh, what the other syndicators plans are for renovations and value add, right? Some, if you buy an asset that's going to have, uh, it's going to be cash flowing from day one, like a class A asset, for example, um, you're, you probably expect less losses to come in than you would from a heavy value add project where it's not rented. And the, the sponsors will be putting a significant amount of work in, in those initial years, those will typically generate larger losses. So that's kind of like from the multifamily aspect of it. It's cost, are, are the sponsors doing cost irrigation studies? What are their plans from the value add? If they're doing more value add, the more likely are you see larger losses because there's not enough cash. There's not a lot of cash flow coming through the property and they have other expenses. So I uh, need to kind of drill down with the sponsors, see what their plan is. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So when we're talking about uh, limited partners, right? LP investors, like we are, like left field investor members are. Can you talk about some tax strategies, things they can do to mitigate their tax burden? And we're talking about both, you know, two two separate kinds of people, I guess. One, those that have the W two and have you know significant amounts coming in that earned bucket, and what can they do, you know, aside from maybe just investing in syndications and transferring their earnings from bucket one to bucket three, effectively. And and then how do those people that don't have a W two, what are their advantages and what can they do? And if we need to talk about the uh, real estate professional here, we, we can talk about that as well. Right. Absolutely. So uh, basically, if you're if you're if you're on the passive bucket, you're going to want to take a look to see how much passive income or passive gains you expect to have for the year and want to make sure that your your other investments that you have in the passive bucket are generating enough uh, uh, passive losses to cover that income, cover those gains so you're not paying taxes. Um, and that's going to be true whether you're whether you have a W two job or you're just a pure passive investor, uh, and you do that full time. That's going to be the same game regardless. Now, if you're an active investor, uh, this is where things get a little bit more interesting. And as an active investor, there's something called the real estate professional status that actually does allow you to turn your rental losses non passive, um, and you can offset your W two or active business income if you are a real estate professional. But to qualify as a real estate professional, you need to have 750 hours, you need to spend more than 750 hours and more than half your total working time in a real property trade or business. Um, and it's very challenging to do if you have a full-time job outside of real estate, which is why uh, if you, it's in fact, it's almost virtually impossible. There's only been one person to do it out of 500 tax court cases when they had a full-time job. So if you have a full-time job outside of real estate, uh, then you're going to be in the passive bucket. And uh, even if you have, even if you're working full-time, you're going to be in the passive bucket and you're going to have to play by the rules I just mentioned, which is again, just making sure you have enough passive law is to offset your inc passive income and passive gains. Um, really, for active investors, unless you have the real estate professional status, it's going to be the same thing. So um, does that answer your question there? I think so. And then I, I think what a lot of people do is if their spouse is not working full-time, they have their spouse do some uh, rental activities, but it still has to meet all those qualifications, right? The hours and everything else and be documented pretty clearly. Right, right. So... Um, yeah, so absolutely. So what happens is if you're some people, you might have spouse A who's a high income earner and spouse B who just manages the real estate portfolio, they might be able to qualify as a real estate professional. Uh, but they they have to independent that set that spouse B in this case has to spend seven more than 750 hours and more than half their total work time in a real property trader business. And if you have rental properties, that typically means that you're going to have to self-manage those properties. That means that you're not going to have a property manager unless you have a very significant size portfolio where you, you're still very heavily involved despite the fact that you're using property management. And for a lot of investors, they kind of get shocked when they learn that they actually have to self-manage and be involved in the operations of their properties. And in many cases, they'll sometimes opt just to be a passive investor because they don't want to. Everybody wants to make real estate a passive invest investment because it's kind of almost designed to be that way in, in many, in many, in many 
ways. So uh, long story short, uh, real estate professional status can help you offset W-2 income. You can have your spouse qualify, but just note that if you're going to do that, you have to self-manage a portfolio that you own directly. Um, and if you want to group your limited partnership interests in, because I know it's a very or passive investments in, in real estate syndication, you have to spend more than 500 hours self-managing your properties in order to group your limited partnership interests in and be able to use the losses from your limited partnership interests against your W-2 or your spouse's W-2 income. So um, it's kind okay. of- a little bit more uh, c- color there, I guess you would say. Yeah, so so if you're an LP investor, um, you're going to have to do some active real estate on the side or have your spouse do it on the side in order to qualify. You can't just have your spouse manage all the LP investments and call that real estate professional. That's not going to fly. Right, right. Actually, there's underneath the tax code, there's a specific carve out that says that uh, limited partnership interests, you're not materially participating, you're not actively okay. involved. It explicitly says that, which is why if you wanted to group them in, long story short, 750 hours, more than half your total working time, and you have to spend more than, and within that 750 hours, 500 hours, you have to spend managing your, managing your own property once you or your own portfolio. Once you manage your own portfolio for 500 or more hours and you're a real estate professional, then you can group your limited partnership okay. interest in at that point. Okay. Um, so switching gears here, you know, there's been some talk in our forum about a regular 1031 exchange through the um, using an operator as an LP interest using an operator that, that allows you to do 1031 exchanges. So the question is, do I need to look for an operator who can do a 1031 exchange with my money? Or can I just use the lazy 1031 strategy and, and do it that way? Because it's a lot easier and you're not then just finding an operator and investing with them just because they have this one feature. They do a 1031 and where you might not otherwise invest with them, right? So is it possible to just use the lazy 1031 and not worry about the regular 1031? Yeah, absolutely. For for uh, passive investors, if you're investing in real estate syndication or, or passive businesses, the lazy 1031 exchange is going to be your go-to choice uh, because you have control over that, right? Um, and what I mean by that is you're going to be able to find out when the sponsor is going to sell the deal or when they're anticipating selling a deal. So you're going to know in that year, okay, I'm going to have a capital gain and I'm going to need to have passive losses available to offset that capital gain so I can go make an investment in another uh, real estate syndication or perhaps a, a passive business syndication where I can take the losses from those and use it to offset that capital gain. That's all within your control, right? Whereas with the 1031, if you want to use a real 1031 exchange, uh, you can't do that as a limited partner. And the reason for that is that 1031 exchanges are limited to real property. So real estate for real estate. When you're investing in a syndicate, you're, you have a partnership interest and you can't 1031 exchange a partnership interest into another partnership interest. So what has to happen there is the sponsor uh, has to go ahead and initiate the 1031 exchange. And then they're 1031 exchanging the underlying property that you're investing in for another property under the same entity. Um, so you're just you're kind of just moving your invest, you're rolling your investment forward with them for lack of a better term. They're the ones actually who has to execute that 1031 exchange. You can't do that as a limited partner. So if you can use the lazy 1031 exchange, that's the way to go. Now, one thing I just do want to note about the Lazy 1031 exchange, it's been extremely powerful over the last few years, thanks to 100% bonus depreciation, still powerful in 2023 uh, with 80%. And it's still going to pack a powerful punch next year with 60%. But as we kind of move into 2025 and bonus depreciation is going to be at 40% or in 20% in 2026, uh, this the ability to use the strategy is going to be diminished. So what some people are doing now and some people have already done and don't let the tax tail wave the dog on this, but they're actually investing more money in these years to rack up more passive losses while 80% while eighty bonus depreciation is in play. Um, so that as it phases out, they'll have these passive losses available to offset these gains as more of these investments start liquidating later down the line. But I, I understand that, and and I'm I'm also looking for those investments. But to, it, you're still going to get the depreciation, right? So and we talked about this before. I don't mean to repeat it, but I really want to try to understand this. So if I let's say I buy a property and I do bonus depreciation, and and I can depreciate a hundred grand just for easy numbers, right? And so that's yeah. the depreciation value that I get in year one. Um, if if there wasn't bonus depreciation, that hundred thousand dollars would still be depreciated over the life of the hold of the asset, right? So 
you still get that depreciation. It's just in the timing. So the, the lazy 1031 strategy, will that still work if you're a consistent investor because you're constantly building up your losses, even though they're not coming in big chunks, they're coming in regular chunks. Does that make sense well, what I'm asking? Yeah, no, no, I, I hear I hear what you're saying now. Okay, so um, basically what happens is like when you're, when you're using 100% bonus depreciation or bonus depreciation in general, you're front-loading a large portion of that five, seven, and 15-year property all in the first year. Um, without bonus depreciation um, and or the component that's not, the, the, the part of it that's not bonus depreciated, that's going to continue being depreciated over five, seven, and 15 years. Now, most real estate syndications are held anywhere between three to maybe 10 years on the high end, right, For generally speaking. So you're not going to get you if you were to hold the asset or the syndicator was to hold the asset, you were in the deal for that long, you would eventually get all of that 15 year depreciation, you would eventually get all of that five year depreciation. But if you're only in the deal for three years, for example, you're not going to get the entire five year depreciation, you're not going to get the entire 15 year depreciation. Um, So yes, theoretically, you would eventually get that if you held on. But without bonus depreciation, if if you're not in the deal for the that that length of time, you're not going to be able to get that entire amount of depreciation. Okay, and I don't mean to keep digging in here, but I really I, I, the the depreciation goes along the whole time, right? So if if I get the depo- bonus depreciation, I only hold it five years, and let's say all of it's a fifteen year depreciation, just for ease of the example, right? So I get it all upfront with bonus depreciation over the 15 years. But if I sell it after five, I have to get depreciation recapture for the back 10 years, right? So what's the difference between that and if I didn't have bonus depreciation and I ju- and I held the asset for five years and I just got one fifteenth of the depreciation for five years and then I have no depreciation recapture when I sell? Isn't the actual amount of depreciation the same? This is what I'm trying to figure out. And not many people have been talking about this. And maybe I'm not making sense, but that's how it looks to me. Yeah. So I kind of I kind of see where, where, where you're saying here. So the, the way I'm, I would try to break it down like this. So when you have, let's just go back to an example. Say you have a million dollar property, right? Um, and that million dollar property, if you take bonus depreciation, it's going to reduce the, your your adjusted basis by the amount of that bonus depreciation. So let's say $10,000, right? Let's just say, for example, $10,000. So now you're going to have an adjusted basis of $990,000. If you were to sell that asset, you're going to have to pay depreciation recapture on that $10,000 of depreciation you took. And the deeper you go into that, the more of it's depreciated, the lower your adjusted basis is. It's So you're the depreciation recapture is not wiped out if you get to the end of the 15 years. So in fact, you're going to have more depreciation recapture. You're going to have to pay the longer, the more depreciation you take. So uh, okay. it's never wiped out. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is that if you if you take if you don't have bonus depreciation, you're not able to take that entire fifteen thousand that entire 15 year property all up front, um, and you're just not going to end up getting it. So if Here's another example. So let's say that in property A, it was a million dollars. You took bonus depreciation on that 15-year property. Let's just say it's $100,000 because you accelerated it all. Well, now you have an adjusted basis of $900,000. When you sell that property, you're going to have $100,000 of depreciation recapture. But now let's say that that $100,000 was spread out over 15 years, right? And you hold it for five. So if we just take $100,000 and you know, we divide it by 15 just to see how much you would normally get over a 15-year period. That's going to be roughly $6,666 per year. You multiply it by five, you're, it's $33,000. Well, now your adjusted basis is going to be a million is going to be a million dollars less than $33,000. So you're looking at $966,000. You're still going to have to pay the depreciation recapture on that that $33,000 you took, but you're just not going to have to pay it on that 100000 because you didn't have a chance to fully get that full okay. 15 year depreciation. Is that making sense? Okay. Yeah, it, it is. And I probably lost 90% of the audience with, with this question. I apologize, but I really wanted to just dig in and see like, what is the real effect? And, and that was, that was a helpful explanation. So I want to move beyond this because like I said, I've been curious about this and, and digging into the weeds here. And um, I appreciate your patience and, and explaining that. Um, I want to go to a question from our uh, infield reform at Left Field Investors that's been posted a few times, and I'm not sure we got a great answer on it yet. 
and it's traveling to conferences. So if I'm right. a, a passive investor, I have a regular job or I don't, but I travel to conferences. Um, can I call that an expense against my passive income? If I visit a property I invested in, can I call that an expense? If I visit a pro- prospective property, but in, end up investing it in it later, or I don't, can I can I count those expenses? So this is a travel type expense against my uh, passive income. Yeah, right. So um, as a limited partner, typically you're not considered to be in a business. You're considered to be an investor. Um, so in many cases, you're not going to be able to deduct the travel costs to the conference, to the property, because theoretically, you don't need, as an investor, you don't need to be at the property to make the decision to invest. The operator, the syndicator has to be at the property. They're the they're running a business, right? So that's kind of the way that, it, because limited, as a limited partner, you're an investor. You're not in a you're not a business owner for the most part. So business owners get the, the luxury of being able to deduct their expenses against their income. Investors, unfortunately, don't. The same way if I if I, if I I um, were to, for example, to fly to a conference, to okay, let's say Warren Buffett's conference, right? Um, I'm not going to be able to deduct that conference against the, the expense of that conference against the income from my stocks or the gains from my stocks um, because it's, okay. we're, I'm not in the business of of investing, I don't. I'm not trading on behalf of other people. Um, the same way here, it, as a limited partner, you're not. You're not in the business of of the syndicators in the business. So uh, we've we've done this before. We've done like a study with one of our clients a few years back, and it was basically determined that you were unable to deduct those expenses. Unfortunately, in the case of a limited partner, which I'm in that bucket too. So believe me, yeah. uh, I feel the pain. Well, what what if I invest through my LLC, which is a business, and the the sole purpose of that business is an investing entity, and I pay the expenses of going to these conferences through that entity and invest through that entity, and everything is in an LLC? Does that change it, or is it still it's a pass through entity, so it just it doesn't change a thing? Right. So it's typically not going to change anything. LLCs really, for tax purposes, don't don't have much of an impact, especially if they're single member LLC. Um, it's, it's, they're disregarded for tax purposes and they kind of just flow through. So it's almost as if you were just to have bought it in your personal name for all intents and purposes there. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you. With that, that is a, that is an excellent answer in this one. We, not the answer we were looking for, but we, we want the true answer. So, um, we appreciate it. It looks like you can't really offset or use those expenses against against the income from from passive. So that, that's great. Um, one last question. When I'm looking at the K-1, when I receive a K-1, what is the most important thing that I should be looking at? Because I usually just, you know, look at them and I say, oh, there's a big loss. Yay, that's good. Send it off to my CPA. Is there, should I be checking to make sure all the numbers are correct? And, and if so, how do I, how do I go about that? Right. That's a good question. So I would say you definitely want to, um, Definitely, probably would want to work with the CPA so that they understand, so that they could check the numbers, and make sure it's all correct on your behalf. But um, definitely want to look at box two if you're investing in real estate syndication. Like you said, that loss is going to be big. You also want to keep track of your capital account. Uh, your capital account is going to be on the left hand, like the lower left hand side of the K one, and that tracks um, basically the basically your capital account is your initial investment at less any depreciation that you took, so any losses you took, less any distributions that were taken. And you want to make sure that that box is accurate because that could have ramifications later on when the in the investment liquidates. If it was not ke- properly kept, it could create um, additional tax ramifications for you. For example, um, if it's not kept correctly and you, ha- you don't have a lot of basis in the property, uh, in your capital account, when the investment liquidates, uh, you could end up paying extra capital gains tax um, because when you basically take a distribution or in excess of the amount of capital, the amount of capital you have in your capital account, it creates a capital gain. So rarely does this happen, but you just want to make sure that's being tracked properly to avoid these types of situations. I'd say that's probably the number one uh, thing next to uh, the box too. Um, then later on, uh, when the property is sold, you want to check the uh, the other boxes down down the, down the line. I have to pull up a K one to tell you the exact boxes, but the capital gains yeah. boxes. You want to make sure that those are all done correctly as well um, at the time the syndication is liquidated to make sure that um, everything is is aligned. Because we've seen a lot of we, we've seen from time to time things done incorrectly where people are paying a lot more taxes than they should 
because uh, the K-1 wasn't filled out properly or their capital account um, was not properly tracked. So those are just things that you want to keep an eye on. Okay. And one last question. Actually, I got an email on this today from a member of, uh, of, our, of our community, and they haven't gotten the K-1 yet. They're, they're, they invested as a group. They haven't gotten the K-1, and they're asking, is there anything they can do to get that K-1, to push the operator to get the K-1? or Because everyone has, is having to extend their tax returns and all that. So is there anything you can do when you're not getting a K-1 on time or you just have to, to wait and hope? And that's part of the downside of being an LP, right? It's not in your control. Right. That, that, is, that is part of being the downside of being an LP is that getting the K-1 is not within your control. Um, there's not much you can really do. Um, one option is if it gets so late in the year, you can always file your tax return um, without the K-1, go back and amend it. Uh, that's not the ideal situation. We typically would not want to do that if we don't have to. Um, but that's one thing. If it does start getting late in the year and you're not getting getting closer to that 10-15 deadline for individual, excuse me, individual returns and you're not receiving that K-1, that is that is that is an option available to you. Otherwise, you're at the whim of the syndicator. Uh, having said that, I do want to say one thing just to be fair uh, to the syndicators out there and their accounting firms. Um, it's not always possible to get those K-1s out right at the 315 deadline um, for partnerships or even sometimes April. Uh, there's a lot of information that has to go into those returns, and the more partners there are, the more – uh, the more complex it gets. Like we have some uh, clients who have hundreds of limited partners. That's a lot of information that has to go into those returns in order to file them. And sometimes collecting that information from the client would be the syndicator. And sometimes the, the syndicator collecting that information um, from property managers and, and their other investors could be a challenge. So I'm not trying to, to make an excuse for people, but I'm just trying to say that it's just part of the game. Um, it's just part of the game. Yeah, that, that makes sense. If you're going to invest in uh, as an LP in these syndications, you have to be prepared to extend your uh, tax filing. That's just that's just part of it. So the last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? I'm going to say it right this time. You cannot use the Tax Smart REI podcast because um, we've already talked about that. So and that'll be in the show notes. But what, what's a podcast you enjoy listening to? All right, so I guess I can't use passive investing from left field either. Um, all right, uh, I'm going to go with Acquisitions <laughs> Anonymous. Um, so it's a really fascinating podcast. They dive into basically acquiring different companies, and uh, it's, it's run by this guy. I think his name is Mike Girdley. Um, really fascinating podcast about uh, business acquisitions and how some companies are built. So I've, you know, as a passive investor, it's just really interesting to see the other side of the equation, what sometimes the operators and whatnot have to go through. Uh, to build a business and go and then do all that. So I found that to be a very interesting podcast that I've been listening to uh, recently. Oh, that's great. I had ne I've never heard of that one. So I'll, I'll definitely check that out. And you can always mention passive investing from left field. So we thank you for that. Um, so this has been great. We really appreciate you being on this show. I know we dug deep into some concepts and that's exactly what I wanted to do. So Thomas, thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard. From real estate syndications to private equity, crypto to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return, Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at Pfizer.co. Well, that was certainly interesting. Um, if you've listened all the way through, thank you for your patience. I know I was kind of digging in there and really trying to understand the concept of what it means when you know, bonus depreciation goes from 100% to 60, 40, 20, and, and zero, and understand, you know, is it really that big of a deal or is it just, you know, a minor deal and maybe we'll want to hold deals uh, longer term? And it, it sounds like it's maybe somewhere in the middle. I think, you know, when you talk to CPAs, everyone has a different opinion. I think Thomas did a great job of explaining that to us. You know, the three buckets, that was how he opened up talking about the earned income. And it's really important to understand these buckets because that's where, you know, the earned income is your W-2 and your 1099s maybe if, you, if you're a contractor. Um, you know, so my thought is anytime you receive that income, if you start investing it 
into the passive bucket, bucket three, then that income is going to be low taxed or no taxed. And so you want to transfer it there as much as you can. Portfolio income, that's the one in the middle where your stocks and bonds and all that stuff, that's for right fielders. I know that you know some of us are still a little bit in the right field or a lot in the right field, and that's fine. I think passive, the third bucket, that's kind of where, that's the left field for us, right? That's where all the real estate stuff lives, and that's where you have the best tax benefits. And so that's why you know, we, we try to we try to live in the left field as much as we can because you get some great investments with great returns with the current benefit as we talk about all the time. But hey, you also don't pay much in tax. And as we always say, the biggest rotor of wealth is taxes. So if you can avoid, well, avoid is the wrong word, defer or minimize, reduce taxes, that's, that's the way to go. We spent a lot of time, as I said, talking about cost segregation and bonus depreciation. So hopefully that was helpful. It was helpful to me just to understand, okay, here's, Here's what the change means. Obviously, I'd prefer 100% bonus depreciation, but there's still reason to invest in real estate even as that goes down. So for the next couple of years, you know, if I have two investment choices and they're both equal and they're both exactly like, yeah, I want to invest in both these and I only have capital for one, I'm probably going to be choosing the one that has the bigger tax benefits, but I'm not going to invest in deals just for those tax benefits. Um, 1031, you know, we always go back and forth on that. Our belief here at Leftfield Investors, the lazy 1031 is the way to go. You know, it's not as it's not an exact science. You're not going to be 100% sure you get it right until the following April, which is unfortunate. But it offers you so much more flexibility. You don't have to get stuck into an asset you don't want to be in. You don't pick a sponsor just because they do a 1031. You can do the 1031 yourself and pick the sponsors that you think will will be the best for you. So again, a lot of information there. I'm going to have to listen to that back two or three times just to make sure that I'm really understanding this. And it also shows you the, the benefit of having quality people on your CPA team because they can help uh, go through this stuff for you. So that's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.